see you. Thank you for I'm asking. So, Thanks for yes, it's me. so glad at the last minute. So you said your kids are gone yes. and it's a great time to do something. Yes, perfect time, perfect time. I'm totally uninterrupted, it's awesome. Yes, amen. I know I just gave my kids an hour device time in one of their bedrooms because we have a small house and hardly any doors. So yeah, yeah. So same, same as us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how have you been doing with coronavirus and all of the craziness in the world? What's been your strategies for trying to stay sane? Yeah. So we've, it hasn't changed our lifestyle as substantially as I, I'm sure it has for some other people because since we were already homeschooling, all of our homeschool activities did get canceled once the shutdown went into effect. Of course here, I'm there again, I'm in a rural area. Again, we're closer. It's not quite like Lamar where it's um, like remote from everything else. We're pretty close to Wichita. So um, when we go to Wichita, we have to wear masks and everything. And um, But yeah, we've been doing okay. I feel like it's really been, um, with everything getting canceled, we were able, the kids did swim team this summer. So that was good. It was a little different. They only had intra-squad meets, so we didn't travel anywhere. But um yeah, it's just been a good opportunity to, to slow down. And I've actually kind of liked it. I haven't liked all the social activities getting canceled because my husband has, he's an introvert. So he's totally fine with, yeah, with that. But living in such a small town, uh, we live where we live now, there are about 600 people. It doesn't feel like life has, and since we already homeschool, it doesn't feel like life has changed that drastically for us, which I'm thankful for. That's true. Are you still able to go to church or what are y'all doing there? No, that is one thing. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Uh, that's been sad. We, well, if that's, oh gosh, that's a long story. Um, yeah. We kind of aren't going to the church that we were going to before the shutdown anymore, which was kind of something that was a long time brewing. And I hate switching churches. I hate leaving churches. It's like not something I ever want to do, but it happens. Mm-hmm. And so we've been going to, gosh, since things started slowly opening back up, we've gone to house church with some of our friends several times. We went and visited an Orthodox church because my husband's very interested in Greek and Russian Orthodox Christianity. And so we're just kind of in limbo right now, which makes me really sad. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. having a church community and I feel like we have a church community, but it's just kind of right now, it's like these scattered groups of people who all go different places or, you know, do house church or so, so yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Yes. We haven't gone since March, I guess. Oh, probably. wow. Yeah. yeah. We haven't been, so we've just been trying to watch online and uh-huh. then it's just all blended into one another. But I did see uh, Andy Stanley's message this last weekend was oh. awesome. Yeah, I like him. I haven't watched, I used to watch him all the time. And for some reason, whatever reason, I kind of fell off with that. I go through phases with different, you know, features that I like to listen to. And I was really big on him for a little while. And then I kind of, yeah, went to somebody else. I need to go back to him, but I really like him. Yes, he's such a clear communicator. But at the very end of his sermon, hey, here's four habits that I recommend. So like, have have a routine on Sunday make sure you're in a Bible study and go, I need to really work on that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause everything kind of fell off the wagon in March Bible study. <laughs> right. 
on Zoom and then we were just all going crazy with kids all over all the time. And so right. and it's like Zoom meetings were such a novelty. I this is the first one I've had in a really long time, so it's fine. But I remember at the beginning it was such a novelty, it was kind of fun, and then it didn't take long where I was like, I don't want to do a Zoom meeting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's zoomed out totally. Yeah, it's zoomed out. Yeah. I don't mind them when they're one-on-one -on -one like this. Yeah, but when it's like this cluster of people and my my kids were trying to do, yeah, they were trying to do meetings for their book club with their homeschool and all the different kids would be talking at the same time. And I was like, this is chaos. <laughs> this is not, I would just leave the room. I'm like, you know. Let's talk about that. So you have a book, so you homeschool and you've homeschooled for a long time, right? Since the beginning? Since the beginning, yeah. So we actually started when we still lived in Lamar, and Izzy would have been starting kindergarten that fall when we moved to Lamar. Um, so this is our, oh my gosh, I guess that means this is our sixth year. Yeah, I guess so. So when you talk about Lamar, that's how I met you. I was a Mary Kay sales director. Uh -huh. I think I had seen you around a bit, and you liked to wear bright lipstick, but somebody... Yeah. Hey, you need to get together with Ashley. She likes lipstick. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I do love lipstick. Yeah. I did a makeover, I think, you know, in the second floor of Wild West, and my training center used to be up there. So, yeah, that's fun. And then, so I'm no longer a Mary Kay sales director. Okay. And you moved, and yeah. we didn't get to know each other that great when you were here. So, no, and I so deeply regret that because, yeah, you're awesome. And, for whatever reason. Well, we weren't there for very long, but yeah, I, I totally regret that. Yeah, so you came back through town, gosh, a year, year and a half ago, two years, who knows what it is. Yeah, I think it was like a year and a half. It was last last spring, I think. Yeah, yeah. and we got together and had coffee. I don't get coffee, but we got together for coffee, and yeah. it's just fun. I think that where we connect is writing and blogging and- yeah, I love your writing. Too much yeah. online. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. That's, that's our thing. So I think that both of us, you know, we'd love to go to a writing conference together. Or do some yes. Things. But um, anyway, that's how we got to know each other. But yeah, with your homeschooling, um, let's go back to where you said your kids had a book club. How does that work? Yeah, so they, um, Izzy was part of uh, Israel, my oldest, who's 10. He, uh, it was through our homeschool co-op. So he had a class that was a book club. And so they would read books together. She would, you know, have a list and he would have to read such and such a book by the next co-op meeting. Our co-op met every other week before the lockdown. And yeah, then for a while they were trying to carry it on through Zoom meetings and it was just, it was kind of crazy. Yeah, that's just a great idea. We're remote learning this year. So okay. doing okay. part of it through the school, but then I got, um, uh, classical conversations oh yeah doing on the side and okay reading all sorts of books that I never thought I would about how to right. classics and things like that so I'm sure you're yeah. somebody with a lot of knowledge what's your biggest what's your biggest advice to to moms or dads or caretakers that are taking care of kids and doing remote learning or and um, if their kids get quarantined for two weeks and have to learn at home what's the biggest that you have learned over the last six years the biggest thing I've learned was something that several people told me before I started homeschooling and I totally didn't heed it at all. And I wish I had, which is you don't have to do everything, like just slow down. You don't have to do everything. Um, I, we really focus now that my kids are getting older, 
they can do more written work, but when they're really little, they really can't just literally their motor skills, you know, they can't hold a pencil for very long. And I would, I was kind of like a drill sergeant because I, when we first started with Izzy, because I felt like, well, and we had also invested hundreds of dollars in this curriculum. And I thought we have to use all of this. You have to do everything. And it was just, it was too much. It was too much for him. It was too much for me. So I'd say my biggest piece of advice would be um, don't feel like you have to do everything. I feel like if you're trying and you're learning together and you're having fun and reading out loud a lot is a big thing. Even my Izzy is an avid reader, but he still loves to be read aloud too. So that's always been a huge part of our homeschool. And um, I just feel like if people are trying, it, it will be enough, you know, like you don't have to do everything. Yeah. Yes, that's totally it. Because I, I got a book about classical education and mm -hmm. here's how much time you should spend every day on this and that and that and yeah. that. And I made a list yesterday, like, okay, I have to get my mind around this. So, right. Was it that one by Susan Wise Bauer? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I read exactly. that one and I found it really overwhelming. <laughs> I was like, my kids aren't going to do this much. Yeah. Yeah. I think she, there's, there are really good things in that book. But I did, I found that book a little bit overwhelming. I'd say we don't, we don't follow that to the T for sure. Yeah. Which I don't know how it's going to, our remote school doesn't even start until next week. I've been trying this last week and this week yeah. trying to, because in school started last Thursday, I guess. And um, so I've been trying to at least get them back out of summer mode. And yeah, right. Yeah. Like we yeah. have to like... <laughs> bribe them with 15 minutes of device time if you come and do this for 15 minutes so right like, like perfect but we're we're transitioning okay that. that's good yeah we always do i feel like i we do a slow transition out of summer mode like you said and then in the but then in the spring i feel like we do just so like kind of gradually fade out of doing school even though every year my intention is like okay we're gonna keep going until like may 15th you know, but then as soon as it's warm outside, they want to go outside and then you get spring fever. And so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It just kind of ebbs and flows. So, right. so you love to write and you grew up in the Kansas City area. Uh -huh. and what kind of school did you go to growing up? Like, because you know some big words, Ashley. Like, <laughs> When you write, I have to look some things up. Like, oh, what's she talking about? <laughs> My husband is always hassling me about, I'll be like, well, what, is, what does apoplectic mean? And I'm like, oh, it just means like really angry. He's like, why can't you just use the word angry then? And I'm like, because there's this rich cornucopia of words available to us in the English language, you know? Why do, I, why do I have to use the same one over and over again? But So I just went to, I grew up in a pretty big suburb of Kansas City called Blue Springs, Missouri. And I went to uh, public schools up through the eighth grade. And then my parents sent me to a private Catholic all-girls school in Kansas City. So that was kind of a long drive in high school. And look back and I'm kind of surprised my parents trusted me to like drive on the freeway every day, but they did. Um, that was a really different experience because we I wasn't raised Catholic and you know, my family's not Catholic. Um, so, and I mean, the Catholic faith wasn't necessarily that woven. I did have to take a religion class, I remember. And um, I did really, I remember at first, like, dreading the all-girls environment, you know, just thinking that would be weird and that would be, but I actually loved it. 
it was so just removing that pressure of having boys around and you know as a teenage girl wanting to impress boys and it was really it was actually really nice so yeah and then I went to the University of Missouri uh, which is where I got my journalism degree okay and then after that you went you said you were a reporter there. I was yeah back in Kansas so, City uh-huh I worked for the Kansas City Star for about six months and I was the Olathe education reporter. Olathe is a Kansas suburb of Kansas City. Um, and so there were lots of school board meetings, um, which trying to figure that out with my very non-mathematical mind was hard because I would have to explain the budget and explain all that. That was really hard for me. So that was my least favorite part of the job. My favorite part of the job was any kind of human interest story. I love doing that. I just love hearing people's stories. I just, I just love it. So I very unwisely though, quit that job after six months. I don't even remember why. I was 23 and stupid. And, and I freelanced, um, but then I did freelance for another section of the, the like music and arts section of the star for a while. And then I freelanced for the pitch for a little while, which is the Kansas City alt, alternative weekly newspaper. I don't know, I guess it's still around. Uh, a lot of large cities have those. Um, and so yeah. That was the extent of my journalistic career, but I still love writing. And um, like I told you, listening to your friend Ron talk made me want to think, or made me think, you know, maybe someday I would like to get back into that again, if I could just write human interest stories. Like I have no interest in, you know, like reporting on any, I don't know, politics or anything like that. But yeah, human interest stories, I just, I just love. I was watching, we were at a thrift store the other day, it's kind of a tangent, but um, a thrift store the other day, and I noticed there was this documentary about boxing. It was about, um, it just caught my eye because it was about a, this boxer who had, like in the 60s, I think, he had, there was a televised fight, boxing match he had with this guy, and he ended up knocking him out and actually killing him. Oh. And, and um, you know, the documentary didn't give a lot away about it, but the boxer who was killed had a had a infant son and a wife and I was like gosh that sounds I don't know like how would that reverberate throughout the rest of your life if you and so anyway but I didn't buy the thrift store because I saw it was on YouTube <laughs> I was just watching it after I listened to your podcast and I watched that and it was just like so moving and well done and I was like I could care you know I could could not care less about boxing like I have no interest in boxing at all but but I feel like if a story like that is well told then it can interest anyone you know a human interest story on in any realm of life can interest anyone so anyway that just I, I just was making that connection listening to your friend Ron talk and then watching that movie I was like man yeah stories yeah well I think that's really what you've done you've just done a human interest story on your life really yeah. You've yeah. Other people in through your blog and then so some of the other places you've written for are the Mops magazine. Some others are preschoolers. Um, I saw there's a Dayspring community that you contribute. Oh to. yeah, it's called Encourage. It's like the Hallmark Dayspring. It's it's their blog um, online community. So yeah, I've that's done that a couple times. That's good. Do you, have you have you written for any other magazines or any other things? I know you've you've written a little bit, and we've toyed around like, hey, what's it look like to write a book? Yeah, and go through that process, mm -hmm. and you've gotten very far on that. 
I actually, so I did, and I was trying to think, have I written for anyone else? I can't think of anything off the top of my head, at least not in the past five to 10 years, you know, since I've had kids. Um, but I actually, yes, I wrote a book length work. Um, probably the, I started some, my dad died in June of 2018, and then my sister died eight months previous to my dad's death. And so I just really felt like I, writing is so therapeutic for me. I really felt like I just need to get this story out. And also I feel like writing is a way for me of drawing out the story that God is telling uh, with my life and with other people's lives. And, and so I just really needed to. So anyway, the fall of 2018, I think I started writing and I would just take one or two nights a week and I would write even if I didn't feel like it feel like it, which was a really good discipline for me. And I would find, even when I didn't feel like it, things, I would, I would just force myself to start and things would emerge and, you know, the Holy Spirit would take over and things would come out. And so I did end up writing a book link work. And then I started um, looking into publishing and pretty quickly got pretty disillusioned <laughs> by that whole process because it's just all, and I don't know, in fiction, it's very different, but any kind of nonfiction, uh, you have to have a pre-existing platform. You already have to have this pre-existing large audience that you can sell your book to um, and that they can sell your book to. And so I don't have any of that. Um, so I did, and you have to send out these query letters to agents. And I did have one agent that was interested and she wrote back and I was like over the moon about that because I didn't at that point I having read and researched I was like yeah nobody's gonna pay any attention and um she ended up she requested to read my book and I sent it to her I mean it's a book you know it's just a word word document but um and she she read it and she said you know I she wrote back and said I really dreaded writing back to you I've been putting it off because I loved your book but I can't sell it. I know I can, I'm not going to be able to sell it because you don't have a platform. And because memoir, she said memoir is very difficult to sell in the Christian market, which I thought was very strange because I love memoirs and I love stories, but apparently people who read Christian books don't. I, I don't know what that's about. Um, or unless you're like Tim Tebow or somebody and you're already famous, you know, then yeah, people want to read your life story, but um, and so, yeah, it's just been sitting in a, I was going to say sitting on a shelf, but it's, like I said, it's a Word document. So, so I just kind of filed that away and it was really therapeutic for me to write it and my husband enjoyed it. <laughs> so there's that. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Like I said, I was just really, I was turned off by the whole process of publishing and trying to market myself and I just kind of threw my hands up which probably wasn't the right thing to do but I don't know maybe I'll revisit it someday so what about you where are oh, you my thought is with that of you know you may have not made any money from the sales of a book but you saved yourself a whole lot of money in therapy right there you go right yeah <laughs> because you you had not to pay somebody to bring all those thoughts and feelings right you, like yeah, you did exactly. it yourself Good point. Know, Good point. Yeah. So you saved a ton of money. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Is it Anne Lamott? Have you read uh -huh. Yeah. Where she talks about, you know, where she works with people who want to become writers and just, and she just always warns like, be careful if you want to become a commercial commercialized 
Right. You lose a lot with that. And yep. so, you know, write because you love to write and right. if you some books along the way or whatever, that's great. But I think that's, that's really good. good. Yeah. And I, that's what I have to remind myself. It's like the, the joy was in the writing. It wasn't in the, which is absolutely true. I, I just love writing. I love it. And that, that's where the joy is and that's where the fulfillment is. And yeah, I read um, Bird by Bird by yes. Emma. Yeah, yeah, okay, was that the one you're referencing? Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it was super good and super helpful. Yeah, just to re like reorient myself to the reality that it's not about getting published, you know, it's not about, I mean, on one hand, it's, I, I feel like I hope that my writing helps people. So I guess in that sense, like, well, if nobody's reading it, it's not helping anybody other than me, you know? Um, but I feel like, you know, for, in the meantime, maybe there is publishing on the horizon someday, but I feel like God has given me a little, a little audience, you know, of people that I know appreciate my work and are, are touched by it. So that's enough. Yeah. One of those things that you wrote recently or that was published recently, I think in February, was about, um, you, you know, you talked already about your sister and your father passing really close together. Yes. Uh, so you and your brother um, went out to spread your dad's ashes. And so yeah. I love the way you put things because you just, you know, there's, there's joy and there's sadness all together in one moment and how you had this, <laughs> how you had his ashes in a really pretty velvet bag. Yeah. <laughs> pull out a little Ziploc with his ashes inside the velvet bag. <laughs> You're like, how do we harmoniously do this? Yeah. The stream, like, how do we even do this? So, so I love how you kind of can juxtapose those two things. And that's, mm -hmm. that's great. So let's, let's go through that a little bit though, because that was a difficult period for you. Um, when your sister died, um, it was just tough, tough for you. And then you just had sorrow upon sorrow. So what are, things that coming out of, I mean, no one's ever done grieving, but here you are a little bit, you know, two years out of some of this. Yeah. What are you learning about your grief and how you've processed things and what's been helpful to you? Yeah, gosh. Um, for me, as, as someone who's very extroverted and loves community and loves deep conversations, uh, you know, like the ones we're having now, I, I found that being in a group was really helpful. I was in a Greek group and it was really interesting because it was just me. I was one of the youngest people there. It was a lot of elderly people who had lost their spouses and um, it was just really enriching and humbling to hear their perspective because a lot of them had lost pretty much everyone. Like there was a man who was, he was approaching 90 and and he said, we would go around the room at the beginning if there was anybody new and talk about who we had lost. And he would come to him. And I remember he would be, what he talks about a lot was his first wife. He was since remarried to this wonderful woman named Ruth, who he had met in a grief group like 20 years prior. Um, but yeah, when it would come to him, he would say, well, you know, my wife, my first wife. And then he'd be like, my mom, my dad, my brother, my younger brother, my older brother younger sister, my other younger, you know, it was just like every single person. And it just really, like I said, it was just really humbling and to hear them talk and the perspective that they would have on, on life and loss and faith. Um, 
And I remember him telling me like, Ashley, you've really come a long way. Like when you first came here, I was, I was worried about you. You weren't doing well. Because I remember after my sister died, that was my first, I mean, I had a great aunt who passed away when I was nine. And so that was, that was sad, but it wasn't catastrophic, you know? And my sister's death was so unexpected. I'll just go ahead and say she died from a drug overdose and we didn't even know that she was using drugs at all. So it was just so shocking um, and just felt so, so catastrophic. And my dad was already very sick with COPD and had been for some years, but he was definitely getting a lot worse at that point. So we, we didn't know. I, I remember thinking I was the first one in my family to find out that she had died, which is kind of a long story. Uh, but I was the first one. And I just remember saying to my husband, this is going to kill my dad, which is what earnestly what I thought was going to happen. Um, but yeah, I think, sorry, sorry to go back to the original question. I, I think being grieving in community was huge for me and very important for me. Um, and just allowing myself to grieve, allowing myself to grieve in the way that I needed to grieve while also allowing other people to grieve in the ways that they needed to grieve. Like for instance, my mom and I are very, very different people. She's very, I've learned, I can learn a lot from her and have learned a lot from her. She's very, she's not very emotional. She's very like you soldier on and you keep going and it's going to be okay. She always, she's so good at spinning. She's like an optimist spinner. She spins everything, you know, and sees the glass half full and everything. She like talks herself into it. Um, and so she just grieved in a very different way from me. And it, I think there were times where I was like, why isn't she, you know, like what, what is, why is she doing this? Or why, and, and I just realized, my husband kept saying to me, like, you have to let her be herself. Like you have to, and also just from a very different, she lost a child, which I can't even imagine, you know, is, is just a different experience for her. Um, so I think that was, and my dad too. So I think that was, that was a big thing. It just taught me, it's very humbling and taught me to have, um, a lot more grace for other people and how they process things. Cause we all grieve so differently, but I think, I think, yeah. So anyway, to reiterate, <laughs> grieving in community and, and just allowing grief to be what it is in myself and in others. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, you wrote a great story about your dad too, when he passed away and it was kind of your, was it the eulogy that you wrote or was it? I did write his eulogy. Yeah. Sorry. My dog is here. That's okay. Okay. Sorry. He just had to go outside. No problem. No problem. I got ice makers in the background. I got everything. Okay. But that was so great. So if we talk about your mom and dad a little bit, your, your dad was like an interior designer, but mm -hmm. for of commercial spaces, right? And yes. Projects that he worked on and, but he loved the outdoors and he loved to be on nature and travel. I know didn't he around quite a bit with your brother in the Western United States and things. Yes. Yeah. And then your mom wasn't she the secretary for the chiefs? She was. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's like my major claim to fame, especially since they won the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> yes, she was. And then she, so when my dad met her, she was the secretary to the owner of the chiefs. 
Lamar Hunt. And then she ended up, my dad, she, she met, actually met my dad when she was on, uh, when she was traveling with the Chiefs in Southern California. My dad's from Southern California. My mom was born and raised in Green Valley, Missouri. And they met on the beach and, um, you know, went on, went out to dinner a couple of times while she was there. And then they kept in touch long distance. And he, he flew to meet her a couple of times and then they got engaged just like a few months after meeting and she, and then he came, he had had an interior design business in um, Southern California and he, he'd actually gone bankrupt and, and then he, but he had gone bankrupt when he was in his twenties, started over. And then he, so when he met my, he really wanted land and in Southern California, especially near the coast, like that not going to happen unless you're a multimillionaire and so he knew that he could get land cheaply back in Missouri so he moved picked up and moved to Missouri to be with my mom they got married and then he launched his business um, in Kansas City and she quit the Chiefs so that she could help him with his business well it looks like it was very successful in what he did yeah, he was. I think it was, you know, fits and starts. It was rocky in the beginning, but then once he really his his cash cow <laughs> was uh AMC theaters. That was when I was probably, I don't know, maybe nine or ten, he got AMC theaters as a client and that was that was a really huge client for him and, and he did really well with that. So yeah. So you had a a different upbringing than a lot of people did. You know, it looks like you had a beautiful house sometimes you'll show the house that you grew up in and and uh, just pretty now nowadays you don't really care much if you have a fancy house <laughs> that's like last thing on your list and um you have chickens and yeah. and you love to do kind of eclectic work of art that's really pretty and by the way do you sell any of your art or not what do you do with your art i just see it on on Facebook, which actually I deleted my Facebook account last week. I was wondering, because I went to, after you texted me, I went to look at, for your Facebook account, because I was like, oh my gosh, I need to listen to some of her podcasts, because I had seen it before, and I thought, you know, store away in my head, I need to listen to that, and then of course forgot about it, and then yeah, I went to look you up, and I was like, where is she? <laughs> so then I just googled the farmeress, and I was able to find it that way, but yeah. There you go, there yeah. you go. So, my artwork, I have sold here and there. I haven't sold anything, gosh, in quite a while. I had a show this summer in Hutchinson, Kansas, which is about an hour away from where we live now, with a couple of my friends who are art teachers at a high school in Wichita. And so that was good, but it was the opening, well, it kept getting pushed back because of COVID. And finally, they did it in June. And they did a really, you know, the gallery did the best they could considering the circumstances, but they weren't able to have an opening, which an opening is kind of like the bread and butter of an art show that's, you know, people, you have free wine and people, you know, lots of people come. And so when you can't have an opening, it's kind of like, you know, it's just not necessarily going to do as well. I didn't necessarily expect to sell anything in any way. And I was grateful for the opportunity, but yeah, it was definitely, definitely different. So I haven't, gosh, I haven't sold anything for quite a while. What'd be really fun though is when I looked through all of your pieces, like, oh my gosh, it'd be so great if you had an Etsy shop and just people could download digital copies and then have them printed or something. You know, I have thought of that and I lately I've so my big drawings are I never really expect 
those to sell just because I feel like they're so, I don't know, individualistic and, and very specific. I mean, they're portraits. And so, but I really enjoy doing the scripture paintings and I've had the thought like, Oh, that maybe that's something that I could, that would be more commercially viable, you know, that would be more yeah. sellable. So yeah, I have thought of that. I'm sorry, my dog's barking. He wants to get it back in now. Just a second. Oh, that's no problem. No problem. Okay. Sorry. He's gotten very impatient in his old age. He's like, that's okay. like 13 and he's, yeah, when he wants to come in, it's, it's time. <laughs> <sighs> Well, you, um, you also have a story to tell and you do tell it a lot about drug addiction and kind of your past where you've come through, um, and what you've learned from that. Yeah. Yeah. What are some things there? I know in, in rural America, we have a problem with prescription drugs, opioid. Um, what, what are some things that we should know? Somebody who's never had an addiction problem, um, so they can better understand their family members, friends, or the community issues maybe that they have right now. Yeah, for sure. So my issues with addiction were a little bit different because I was really into psychedelic drugs, which don't necessarily have the um, physical addiction quality that something like opioids or methamphetamines or even to an extent marijuana would. Um, or other various other prescription drugs. So, so it's a little bit different. Um, but I would say I was still very psychologically addicted to psychedelic drugs, addicted to the, the high, even though sometimes I would have really negative experience, very terrifying experiences on them. Um, I, and I felt, and there again, like I said, this is somewhat different from a typical, typical addiction, but in some ways it's really not. So I, uh, felt like I was an atheist before I tried psychedelic drugs. I was uh, no interest in spiritual things whatsoever. And I, I realized <laughs> that there was a God after trying LSD for the first time. And I, I, now I look back on that and think like, wow, that's like way more a testament to God and how he can reach people in any situation rather than the drug, you know? And so I do not in any way, shape or form advocate for the use of LSD or any other drug, obviously. Just to be clear, that's right. Be very explicit, yes. Um, but then uh, at the time though, I said, oh, this is, this gives me spiritual, this is the gateway to spiritual experiences. This is, and so um, I just got very addicted to having those experiences. Like I said, even though I had very terrifying experiences, what I would term demonic experiences. Um, but I, I was thinking of that and thinking that it's not necessarily so different from, because I feel like everyone who becomes addicted to drugs is trying to fill a void. And I think, um, as it's often said, I believe that we all have a God-shaped void that only God can fill. And so, but we're always trying to fill it with other things. And so I think it was, maybe it was C.S. Lewis or George MacDonald who said, like, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. And I remember the first time I heard that thinking, like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, but, but in a way, like, it's this looking for 
yearning for transcendence, yearning for which only God can ultimately supply, but it's like looking in all the wrong places for this transcendence. And so I think, but I was going to say, I feel like I also have a, a kind of a, I don't know if I would say like wisdom or from the experience of my sister, um, just on a practical level, like not even knowing that she, she died of a synthetic opioid uh, overdose. And we don't even know where she was getting it. If she was getting it off the internet, I, there's a lot that's still just so murky about what happened. Um, but she hit it extraordinarily well. I mean, I never, never would have guessed. I thought people who were injecting opioids, you know, like heroin or, I thought someone who was doing that, it would be extremely apparent. You know, they'd be like nodding off at random intervals, like it would be extremely apparent and it wasn't at all. Um, so I guess that's something, like I said, I don't know if that's a helpful piece of wisdom or, but that I guess just, I don't know. I look back and I think, gosh, how could I miss that? Like what, there must've been signs. There must've been something. There must've been, yeah, but there, there just really wasn't. And maybe if I had been more acquainted with the signs, I would have noticed something. Um, but there just really, there just really wasn't hardly anything that I could even look back and point to. Um, but gosh, I feel like I'm not answering your question. <laughs> no, you are. And I think yeah. that addiction has much broader terms too. It's not just drug addiction. You know, we right. have addictions to everything. You right. know, me, I would have a sugar or a carb yeah. addiction. It's horrible, you know, sure. and yeah. really does just as much damage. And everybody's got different things, like you said, to fill that God-shaped void in yeah. us. And um, how we fill that is very important. And we can either fill it with healthy things or not so healthy things. Right. And there's a brain component to all of it um, to where once you are hooked, it's hard to get off no matter right. what and so I think um, some personalities are just more, um, I guess, more likely to get addicted. And yeah. depending on your genetics, your family history, um, environmental things that happen, you know, and with alcoholics or whatever, I think just we have to get uh, more curious about what right. drives people there and what happens when they're there. And right. how is as people, just as with our friends, family, whoever, and as society as a whole, we need to start dealing with these things. Right. And I, with um, Black Lives Matter, with a lot of what been, what's been going on now, when you, when you talk about um, inner city issues and, right. you know, rural perspective, there's just a, a certain mindset that we've, that we've heard repeated over and over and internalized where we may not know the full issue. Why did someone get on drugs to begin with? Right. Why did they start to sell drugs? Right. Um, what's, the, what's the core thing that's driving that? And um, I think we just have to increase our awareness, our curiosity. Yeah, I agree. And I, I remember, gosh, not too long ago, I don't even remember who it was or what the context was. My, maybe it was a, in like a church group or something. I remember there was a woman said like, I just don't understand why anyone would even ever try drugs. I just have never even understood that. And I, I shouldn't use that tone. She wasn't saying it necessarily in like a haughty way, but she was just saying like, I just don't, 
why would you ever do that? And I was like, oh, I understand that. Like, I completely understand that. Um, it, it, yeah, it just makes, not that it's a good solution, obviously, it's a very extremely destructive solution too. But I feel like, like you said, there are so many factors, genetic factors, you know, environmental factors that contribute to someone ending up in a place of addiction. And then, like you said too, once, addiction takes over it's no longer like I've heard it said it's no longer a choice it was a choice at one point but then it becomes no, no longer a choice and I come from a long line of alcoholics um, my maternal grandfather um, died from complications of alcoholism my mother's um, sister on the same side uh, died of self she committed suicide she was a lifelong drug addict, drug addict and alcoholic, and she eventually committed suicide. And then her son, my cousin, also committed suicide. He had um, and had addiction problems. And um, so it's just <laughs> terrible to see. It is like, you know, in my family line, like you can very clearly see, trace the genetic legacy, you know, and the I'm sure in that case too, it was not just a gen purely genetic legacy. It was also an environmental legacy, you know, of like each of them had grown up in an environment of alcoholism. And um, my mom was really, I remember when I was a kid, my mom had all this. She was in Al-Anon for a long time, which is the branch, you probably know, the branch of Alcoholics Anonymous for family members and friends of alcoholics. And she, and I would sometimes go and read, and she had the, um, Oh, one of the AA prayers. Um, God grant me the serenity to change, or to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I have, I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. She had a little cross stitch of that on her wall, and I always think of that. I wish I still had that, but they sold it in the estate sale before the move. But, um, but yeah, it's such a it's such a complex thing, and I've thought about it a lot, especially since my sister died. Just wondering what how it could have been prevented, you know, what led her to that, what led, led her to not ask for help. And I look back and I see one time in particular where I feel like maybe she was making a cry for help, but it didn't, I didn't realize it or it didn't, it didn't, you know, when you don't know, you don't know. And she just, yeah. And, um, yeah it's such a tragic problem it's so sad and it's such a it's such a waste of life i think that's what angers me the most it's such a waste of life um i remember not long after Leah died my sister i saw this article somewhere about i think it was in san francisco they have these clinics where um addicts can go and they provide clean needles for them. They don't provide the drug, but they provide clean needles and there are there are nurses there. And I was really offended when I first read that. I was really taken aback. I was like, that is so messed up. Like that is so and the more I thought about it, I don't know where I am on that. I still feel a little wrong about it. I feel like it's a little off. And I feel like there there needs to be a more comprehensive solution than just enabling people. You know, but things like that, reading about things like that have made me think twice about like, you know, what are the solutions to this problem? Like what can be done? Is that, where is the, 
where is the, I feel like there's some ambiguity there as far as like, where is the line between enabling someone and keeping them safe, you know, and I don't necessarily know the answer to that. I read a story about that as well, not in San Francisco, but I think I read about maybe in uh, Quebec, Canada, where they, where they did that, maybe. I don't remember exactly where it is, but it was in one of the toughest neighborhoods and a lot of yeah. drug use, but their deaths went way, I mean, their overdose <laughs> deaths yeah. went way down. Yeah. And so as Christians, when um, you look at a pro-life issue, you know, pro-life doesn't mean just preventing abortions. It's right. from womb to tomb. Right, right. <laughs> so along the way, some people get caught up in drugs Right. What do, do to try to save their life. And I honestly, I think I'm for that kind of um, yeah. places where they, where they just rent out a space in a downtown of an urban area usually, and just make sure that they have clean supplies, clean needles, they know how to appropriately administer things. And, but they, they weren't having people just die out in a cardboard box and right. know about it. They right. were safely. And I mean, whatever you call safe, but, um, I think that that article changed my mind, or it may have been actually a PBS special, like a documentary. I think okay. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, um, I don't know. I don't know the difference, but you know, it's, it's different probably than when your sister, she, she passed away and she didn't get to go through the recovery process at all. Right. So whenever you first, when you started taking a different path, you actually went to treatment, right? Um, not, I, so I actually, I didn't go to treatment for drug addiction. I went to a psychiatric hospital because I was like having a mental breakdown, which was certainly, um, a result of, I, I mean, I have had issues with mental illness off and on since I was a child, mainly with panic attacks and bad anxiety and depression. Uh, just episodic, you know, it hasn't been like, my life has been constant misery, certainly not, you know, but it seems like every few years, I seem to have a major episode. Um, and so that was in, let's see, in my mid 20s, early, early to mid. Yeah, I was, that was this period of time I was uh, using a lot of LSE. And I just took me to a really scary, certainly exacerbated, badly exacerbated you know, any pre-existing issues I had and compounded, yeah, and just made everything worse. So I just, so that was technically, technically not for drug treatment. Like I said, it's, um, LSC doesn't have the, the physiological addiction component that like an opioid or something like that would, or cocaine or something like that. Um, so it's a little different in that respect, but, um, I think for me, you know, and I wish I could say that after that psychiatric inpatient say I stayed away from that stuff, but unfortunately I didn't. It still took another couple of years before I completely was like, this is, and I, I remember distinctly, I, I am not one of those people who I feel like, you know, God tells me this, God tells me that, God tells me turn right and you'll find parking space. You know, that's just not, I don't experience God that way. Um, and I don't disbelieve people who say they do experience God that way. I, you know, I'm kind of envious, but I feel like I can only point to like a handful of times that I feel like God has spoken in a really direct way where it's like unmistakable. Um, 
And I remember I was sitting on the front porch of our rental house in Kansas City and and I feel like God said, like, you need, you need to stop. It was just a really clear, like, you need to stop. You need to leave this behind. Um, and I remember I cried, which is really bizarre. I, I mean, I cried. Well, the thought I had was really bizarre in response to God saying that. I had the thought, but LSC is my friend. And I just, <laughs> it sounds so bizarre. I know. But, and I, I look back and I say now, like it really was not my friend at all, you know, but it felt like this, almost this companion to me, like I had almost like personified it, which is just really, I guess, to some extent goes to show how bizarre things can get when you take psychedelic drugs. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I just look back at that and I'm so thankful that God spoke that to me so clearly and almost like. And I, I think I was still holding on too to the idea of like, this is how I have spiritual experiences. Like I'm never going to have like a, this mountaintop experience with God again, if I don't keep taking this drug, at least, you know, periodically once a year or whatever, at that point I, you know, but, um, but yeah, I feel like my experiences not on drugs now with Jesus are so much purer and more beautiful and, and yeah, so I just look back at that and I think I'm so thankful that, that it was almost like I needed, it, I don't know, it was like, it wasn't like a thundering condemnatory, you need to stop, you know, you're being, but it was like a, it was almost like giving me permission. <laughs> I don't know, it sounds so strange, but I feel like, I, I feel like I have had those experiences with experiences with God where I've been like immensely humbled and I that oh hey sorry my husband just got home from work um but I feel like too I've experienced that like you know when uh was it Elijah or Moses that asked to see God's face and God said hide in the cleft of the rock you know and he wasn't in the storm he wasn't in the and he was just in the he's like he was in the wind right or he was in the soft or the still small voice in the wind. Stephen, is that right? When Moses asked to see God and God said, you need to hide in the rock and like the storm passed by and, and then God was in the, <laughs> he said, stop. That's what he said. <laughs> okay, sorry. You're thinking of Elijah. Elijah, okay, I'm sorry. Wow, that's embarrassing. It was Elijah. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah, because okay. the, the wind passed, but he was not sorry. in the wind. Oh, he was not, okay. I'm actually on a podcast right now. So this still small voice. I'm sorry. I hope yeah, I'm not here, ruining here. the podcast. She's, she's just <laughs> going to move and I'm going to take over. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> anyway, man, I felt like I knew the Bible pretty well. That's embarrassing. But, um, but yeah, I feel like like often I experience God too as that that gentle, no less powerful for being gentle, but that gentle presence, that gentle voice, that gentle like insistence. So yeah. So you, I think you've written that you were 22 when you became a believer. I was, well, no, I was really, I, well, okay. I was, when I decided that there was a God, I was probably about 23. But from 23 to about 27, 28, I was really new agey. So not, it was definitely not, nothing about Jesus. I didn't believe Jesus was the son of God. I didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I just believed there was some kind of intelligence, you know, 
that created the universe, but I didn't really encounter Jesus and accept him as Lord until it's probably about 28. And what led you there and what were the, who were the people surrounding you and the um, environment that helped you grow? Uh, my husband just handed me a Bible, and yes, sorry, it was Elijah. I was wrong, not Moses, Elijah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that that was kind of a long and winding road. I, when I was pregnant with my daughter, which I would have been 28, um, or 27, 28, my husband had started seeing a therapist, and, because um, he was dealing with some anger issues, and he had started seeing a therapist, and at that time, I think we were going to a unity church sporadically, which is a super new agey with, like, maybe a little tiny dash of Christianity, but not really. Um, and so this therapist that he was seeing recommended a church called Jacob's Well in Kansas City, near where we lived. It was just, a, like, six blocks from where we lived in Kansas City, in Midtown. And he said, and my husband had been, he had been getting interested in Christianity had been reading some books and, and he said, I'm going to go, I want to try this church. And I said, Oh no way. I'm not stepping foot inside a Christian church. No, I don't want to, you know, I was just very, very resistant, very, didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And so he would go every Sunday and he would take our son and I would stay home and work on artwork. And finally, one Sunday near the end of my pregnancy, I agreed to go with him. And I remember feeling like I was being left behind, like he was pursuing this thing that I didn't understand at all, but I didn't want to be left behind, but I just didn't get it. And I just couldn't give myself over to it. I, I just didn't understand it. And, but I finally agreed. I was probably eight months pregnant. I finally agreed to go with him. And I remember just bawling during the worship at the beginning of the service, just bawling. And we were like in the back row, but, and um, that's when I started thinking, on one hand, I was like, well, I'm pregnant, you know, I'm hormonal, but I started thinking maybe there is something to this whole Jesus thing, this, this Jesus person, maybe, maybe there is something to him. And so I'd say that was the beginning. Even from there, it was a little bit of a winding road, but that community at that church was so amazing. And like, so people are just so patient and tolerant and loving. Um, and yes, yeah, so I feel like I look back and I'm so thankful that God planted us in that place, you know, as, as um, first non-believers and then very new Christians. Cause I feel like there was so much grace extended and so much like, patience and understanding and love. And I look back and I'm very thankful for that. So that's the short story. That's awesome. Yeah. Now you have been pretty involved in, like we talked about it earlier, you, you have written um, for the MOPS magazine and online. Uh, How has MOPS helped you mothers of preschoolers? I love, I have loved MOPS so much and it actually makes me really sad that I'm not going to be in it anymore. I actually technically would have graduated like two years ago because my daughter is now she'll be going to third grade um and we had hoped to have more children my husband actually got a vasectomy reversal but that it's been three and a half years now and nothing's happened so um i would like to adopt someday but uh i don't know about that at this point yet either 
And so, yeah, I, oh, I love moss. It was, it was my primary way of making friends. Like in Lamar, that was pretty much all the friends I made. I made through moss. Um, and it was just such a source of, of support and love and hospitality. I, so I was part of three different mops groups, one in Kansas City. And it's funny, the one in Kansas City was, it was in, we lived in Midtown, you know, so this pretty like secular, you know, hip area of Kansas City. And there were a few churches, like I said, there was Jacob's Well, which was the church that we landed at. And then there was this little Baptist church that had only like five people in the congregation and they hosted mops. And so, I think my husband had heard about it and he said, Hey, you should try this, this mom's group. And for, it's just a, you know, mother's group, mom's group. And so I went and, and a lot of times the meetings, we weren't even an official mom's group because we didn't pay dues, but I guess the mom's organization like took pity on us and would like, <laughs> send some materials. And a lot of times it was just me, the coordinator, and then our one mentor mom, who was this sweet, sweet woman in her eighties named Alice Claire, who had had 10 children. And she was just as sweet as can be. And a lot of times it would just be us three. So like sometimes somebody else would show up. But so that's what I thought MOPS was. And then we moved to Lamar and I went to my first MOPS meeting there. And I was just like, there's so much food and there are like 50 people here. Like this is insane. And so, so yeah, that was, that was eye opening and that was a wonderful experience. And then I was part of the MOPS group here, not in the little town we live in Leon, but a town called Augusta about 15 minutes away and it was a group that was um similar to the Lamar Moss probably a little bit smaller so so I feel like I've been so blessed by each group I've been a part of and they've all been very different you know so yeah yeah I never got involved much I think I just went to a couple yeah things and especially if they needed me to do something for Mary Kay on a pampering day or something right but I can go it alone I don't know what I thought but (laughs) what it is <laughs> everybody can find their group though I think right. that's the point is is that yeah you know, at the time I felt like I had um really great Mary Kay friends and yeah touring and leadership and and obviously most of the Mary Kay women have had family or yeah different stages and so you could ask advice and actually it was a another Mary Kay director from Kansas City who yeah, okay me that she volunteered in her kids classrooms and that was really important to her and so it's Roxy is her name and so I took that advice and volunteered tried to at least once a week in each kids classroom and it's kind of um, morphed you know as things go on where where I get busier and have to work with Jeremy on the farm a little bit I can't do it as much or whatever but I think that's so important and yeah definitely to do that so wherever you get that leadership and mentorship from is good. So yeah, for sure. So cool. So I'm just going to wrap this up with three questions because my kids device time ran out and they're all running around trying <laughs> okay. to okay. not make noise. And so, okay. What are you reading? Oh, okay. I love this question. So I am reading several things right now. I'm trying to finish. I've been trying to read Bleak House by Charles Dickens since this winter. It's like 800 pages long and he's, and I don't have a problem with, I like long novels, but for some reason, I just cannot seem to finish this book. And so I really wanted to say that I finished a Charles Dickens book, but I, yeah, I'm trying. I've got like two other pages left. And, and then I'm also reading a book by John Lennox. He's a, he has like a PhD in mathematics and he's British and it's called Can Science Explain Everything? 
And I've been, I, I really like to listen to um, podcasts about, there's one in particular I was listening to a lot that I, where, this is where I learned about him, where uh, Christian scientists and atheist scientists or, you know, or just Christian theologians and atheist philosophers have discussions and debates. And so um, just those questions are really fascinating to me. And obviously he's, he's a Christian, so he comes down on the side of like, no, science can't explain everything. Um, so what's the name of the podcast then? It's John Lennox's podcast or? No, it's called Unbelievable with a question mark at the end. It's hosted by a man named Justin Brierly. Yeah, and it's out of, it's, he's British, so it's a, but yeah, it's super good. It's super good, just really fascinating. And um, I'm almost finished with a book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, which is uh, written by a man named Dr. Paul Brand with Philip Yancey. And Paul Brand was a leprosy doctor, um, or a doctor who treated leprosy patients in India and then in Louisiana. Um, and just his, his revelations into how God created the body are just really fascinating. And he talks about how, like, if he could give his leprosy patients any gift it would be the gift of pain and he talks a lot about yeah which I thought was really fascinating and I didn't even know like obviously you know you read about lepers in the bible but I didn't know that it it numbs people's nerves like it numbs the tissue so they can't so they end up destroying their body because they don't have any signals you know like we if we touch something hot like we feel it and we draw away like they wouldn't and so um that's been really really fascinating um I just finished, I think in novels, I, I just finished not too long ago, the third installment in Hilary Mantel's uh, historical fiction, I love historical fiction, historical fiction trilogy about Tr Thomas Cromwell, and it was called The Mirror and the Light, and that was super good. I've been waiting like several years for it to come out, the final installment, and it was super good. So yeah, I've always got like seven or eight different things I'm reading. <laughs> did too, that's good. Now, are there any other, any other podcasts you're listening to, or... Yeah, so I've been listening to um, Unbelievable a lot. That's been my big one lately. I really like the BioLogos um, podcast. It's called Language of God. That's one of my favorites. Um, BioLogos is a Christian organization that seeks to reconcile modern scientific um, knowledge with um, biblical, both the biblical worldview. Um, so I always love listening to that and listening to like these super smart scientist people, you know, talk about things that I don't really understand and talk about how they, how they reconcile that with their faith. Um, so yeah, those are the two big ones that I've been, I've been super into recently. Awesome. So instead yeah. of me listening to scientists, I guess I do some, I listen to TWIV sometimes. I haven't lately. It's a, it's the a bunch of virologists, you know, with COVID. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple of them, I think, were at University of Florida when I was. So that's kind of fun. Oh, but interesting. To, to, yeah, doctors and lawyers who, I, you know, I don't know their, their trade, but it's interesting to hear them talk about their trade and they're just yeah. so about things. So, yeah. so that can give me a little bit of a, a introduction on things. So I appreciate that. So how about anything you're watching? Anything you've binge watched? Oh, I am so talk about. <laughs> so I so I'm like so lowbrow when it comes to I love the Marvel movies. I love love love, and I I hadn't we hadn't watched any of them until like it was maybe gosh just this winter. My husband was like, I think I'm gonna 
I'm going to get the Avengers movie from the library so the kids and I can watch it. And I was like, oh, superhero movies. I have no interest in superhero <laughs> movies. And I was just like doing whatever, cleaning the house, doing something else. And they were in there watching it. And I kind of peeked around the corner. And then I sat down for a few minutes. And I was, and then I was like getting into it. And so since then, we've just been, we have like watched all of them. And I kind of love it because for me, it's been the same as Harry Potter. Like when Harry Potter was actually happening, I was like, that's dumb. You know, I was like, this is that's silly why would I want to read a kid's book you know and but then like once all the movies were already out all the books were already out then I just happened to see, I think I'm gonna pick up the first Harry Potter. why not I'll try reading it and then I was yeah. like oh my gosh this is amazing and so I could watch I didn't have to wait you know for anything to come yeah. out just read all the books and watch all the movies and so it's been the same with the Marvel movies and I've, I've watched Endgame like six or seven times and my daughter's always like well, I, I don't, I, I, at this point, I think pretty much everyone's seen it, but I still don't want to spoil the end, but the okay. end, I, always, I always cry, and Arrow's like, mom, are you crying? I was like, yes, I'm crying? Of course I'm crying. Why aren't you crying? <laughs> yeah. That's fine. I know, like, I, I never dreamed I would like Iron Man, but I did, and yeah. then especially, uh, my friend Brooke, I talked to for the podcast, one of my earlier episodes, and she was on, she's an actress, and so she was in Iron Man 3. And oh, that really? Was the ultimate for my friend to be in a movie that I just couldn't get enough of. Like, wow, that's cool. I'll so those are awesome. That one. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I've been watching some crazy stuff, but it's been, yeah. Who knew I could watch so many seasons so tightly together? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. When it rains yeah. or something. Yeah. So there it is. So. Well, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. And I appreciate yeah. it. And a lot of what you say, a lot of what you write, most people would never be that vulnerable to put themselves out there, but you have. And I think you've done that. My, much, much to my husband's dismay. I have. <laughs> <laughs> Probably ditto on my side. Jeremy, never, sometimes he'll stop me before I push the public button. You know, like, are you sure you published that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, there it is. But um, I don't think that you've done that in service of your own ego at all. You've done that to help other people and show them a way that, that maybe they didn't know was available. And so I appreciate you for that. So. I hope so. Thank you. I hope so. Absolutely. So you have a great day and have a good time until your kids come back whenever. So Yeah, it's not until this weekend. So yeah. Oh good. You got lots of time. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well we'll see you later. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Right. It's so fun. It was fun. We'll do it again soon. All right. Okay. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my mom's podcast today. She had a lot of fun. If you want to read some of the crazy stuff my mom writes about our life on the farm, go to her blog at farmerist.com. Have a great day!